Good evening, everyone. So glad that you're here. Jackie's been praying again, right, for the rain for her raspberries. God's been listening. The rain's coming, so. want to welcome everyone. You're glad, glad that you're here tonight. Um, we will be studying Daniel tonight. So the story of Daniel, that's where we'll be, as I announced last week. If you want to be turning there, so. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we pray that you'll bless our time of study tonight and our time in your word. Help us to uh, learn from your word, to see the messages you would have us to see. Help us to have a, a good time of study and discussion that is uh, fruitful and encouraging and uplifting. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to focus our minds uh, on your word tonight. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I do have a little tickle in the back of my throat, so I'm going to try not to <coughs> do that too much tonight. So I did one good one to start. Hopefully we can make it through the evening, I hope. so. The book of Daniel. I think there's some, uh, some simple stories, uh, some simple lessons we can learn from uh, two or three of the main stories within Daniel. And... Um, maybe be able to get them all done tonight we'll see i think we can so okay so daniel opens up does anybody know the background where are the god's chosen people at this time when we look at the book of daniel what has happened to them they're in babylon why (laughs) what's happened Yeah, we see a cycle with God's people. Ron said the same thing that happened every time. And uh, I'll admit that I used to be very hard on the children of Israel and think, how can they be so irresponsible? How can they be so stupid? They, they, they learn about their lesson from God, and then they fall away, and God punishes them, and then they come back. And I think, hey, how dense. And then I look at my life and think, oh, whoops. <laughs> Don't I do the same thing? Oh, I get really close to God. Things are going well. And then... Maybe I drift away a little bit, you know, so, um, but what we see here is God's chosen people have done what he had, they have um, sinned in a way that they've rejected God again and again. God warns them, he punishes them, he brings them back, he has grace, he has mercy over and over. Uh, And this is one time where the, the children of Judah have been taken into captivity. So they're in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has taken them into captivity. Um, one of the things I, I do like to talk about when we, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of modern day politics, and, and I actually heard somebody say this a couple of weeks ago, and I've heard this a lot. As Christians, we need to be really careful when we talk about modern day Israel and what they have a right to. This has nothing to do with them being an ally as a USA. I'm glad they're an ally, but they have no right to where they are. The children of Israel and Israel is not God's chosen people anymore. They don't have a right to land anymore. They, they were re, uh, rejected by God. But I've heard Christians use that argument. Israel deserves Jerusalem. God has said, nope, I, I'm done with you. I cast you away. So Israel has no modern day right to anything. They are not God's chosen people. They are not a special people. So make sure as Christians we don't get caught up in that. Let me ask this question, though. The entire nation is taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. Was everybody in Judah unfaithful? No. I mean, we're going to read about some tonight that stayed very faithful, right? 
then why does the entire nation get punished? I mean, is that fair? There's consequences. You know, we've talked about this several times. There's consequences to sin. And those consequences don't just stop with me. We see innocent people get punished. We see innocent people go through hard times. We see innocent people lose their lives because of someone else's sin. And there are people in Judah that are faithful. We'll see some tonight, but they go through the same consequences. Now, we'll say this. We talk about consequences, and we are told this is a punishment for their sin. We know that. But if you were to ask Daniel 60 years later, would he have said this was a bad thing in his life? Daniel, who several times in several kingdoms is one of the top people. Daniel, who's able to stay faithful to God. Daniel, who gets a tremendous amount of power but keeps pointing back to God. This wasn't a... Tony shaking his head. No, this was a blessing to Daniel. And so again, as we get started, I want to help... Most weeks I'll be saying this. We have to change our modern-day view, our Americanized view of what is a blessing and what's not in life. We've got to quit thinking that when God gives me money, it's a blessing, and when something bad happens, it's not. Daniel went into captivity, and he glorified God and is uplifted and is second in charge of the kingdom several times. He rules over Babylon several times. That's a blessing, being in captivity. So, again, we just have to reshape our mind about what we think is a blessing and not use the materialism as our standard. A blessing is something that glorifies God, something that brings us closer to God, something that strengthens us, something that helps us deal with hardships, something that teaches us a lesson, something that humbles us. A blessing is not money or a job or health. Those things can be good in your lives, but they may or may not be from God. I've said it, and I'll say it again. If Satan thinks money is going to keep you out of heaven, don't go buy a lottery ticket because he's going to make sure you win. And you may think it's a blessing, but if Satan can use it to keep you out of heaven, he will. So we just have to change our modern-day thinking. Okay, so let's get into the lessons tonight. Um, Daniel's taken into captivity, and there's, there's four men, and they have two different names, but Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are going to be the, the source of our stories tonight. And they distinguish themselves early on, and not just because of the choices they make. They do make choices. They don't want to eat food that, that God has said would defile your body. Remember, the, the Jews had things that they could and couldn't eat. But God also blesses them, we're told, in chapter 1, and, and distinguishes them from those around them. And then you have this opportunity. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And God gives Daniel the ability to interpret this dream. We've heard this before, right? Remember the story of Joseph, where God miraculously allows Joseph to know what's going to happen, and that's what elevates Joseph, right? That's what gets him into Egypt so that God can then do what he needs to do. Well, the same thing happens with Daniel. He's able, uh, he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar when no one in the kingdom can interpret this dream. No one knows what's going on, and Daniel's brought in. Now, I want to notice in, in chapter 2, when Daniel's about to interpret the dream, does anybody remember what he says when, when Nebuchadnezzar says, I hear you can interpret my dream? What's his response? No. I can't do it. You're wrong. Yeah. I can't do it. But you know who can? Yeah. So he does the same thing we saw with Joseph when Joseph says, aren't interpretations of dreams gods? And I'll just tell you, it would be really tempting for me if I had the ability to predict the future, if I had the ability to interpret dreams, it'd be really easy to get a kind of a big head, wouldn't it? 
But the first thing we notice about Daniel is, no, I can't interpret your dream, but God can. We've said this before in some of our other stories, the importance of giving God credit for what he does. And and this is a struggle for us because we in uh, modern-day society, humility is not something that we value. We say we do. Christians do. But society says they do, but they don't, right? You know, watch any sporting event. Oh, that was a nice, humble guy. No, it's the guy who's talking trash. It's the guy who's in your face. That's the guy who sells more shoes. That's the guy who gets more endorsements. The fan jail for him, right? Humility is not... When was the last time we elected a humble president? One who said, you know, I don't even know if I'm qualified for the office, but I'm going to try to do it. Not in the last 225 years. Kind of a joke there because we've never done it. You say, oh, look back at these writings. No, you study every person who served. You don't get to be the president by being a quiet, humble person in the corner. But what about, I don't care who you say, right? We don't reward humility that much in our society, but God does. God really does. And we're going to talk about arrogance a little later. And I, and I want to make sure when we frame this in our discussion that sometimes we think about arrogance and relate it to our Christian lives. But God condemns arrogance in any aspect of our life. And the other thing we're going to talk about later is a misunderstanding about arrogance, right? Some people say, well, arrogance is because people can't do what they claim that no, no. Arrogance is not about making false claims. Arrogance is not about falsely elevating yourself. You can be the greatest basketball player in the world, and you can be arrogant about it, even though you are the best. You can be right about something and still be in sin because of arrogance and pride. So we see Daniel in Daniel chapter to God in heaven who reveals mystery, he has made it known, not me. And then Daniel says in verse 30, not because of any wisdom that I have. And he goes a step further. This is not me. It's not even that God gave me the ability. It is God. It is only God. It is not my wisdom, right? Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, right? And so it is all God. And Daniel interprets this dream through God. And what is the dream? I heard somebody say the word. There's a statue. You don't have to remember the specifics, but you kind of remember what the statue was? I always get them confused. Was the gold on top or gold on the bottom? Right. Gold started on top, and then silver, and we got bronze, and we got clay, right? We kind of moved down. And so Daniel interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he's rewarded. He's raised up. He's elevated. Um, but... What does the, what's the meaning of the dream? Remember the statue. What's the meaning of this dream? Now, there's two statues in Daniel, so don't get them confused. This is the dream, the statue, and then later we have Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue. Right? So what, is the, what does this statue mean? What is, it, what is the interpretation? So it's about kingdoms. That's a great answer. So what he is predicting is you've got Nebuchadnezzar that's gold. He's been raised up. He's this great kingdom. You're going to have these series of kingdoms that are come and go. And historians will label these. I don't know if they're right or not. And they talk about the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire. You're right. You have these series of kingdoms that are going to come and go. But at the end, something's going to destroy this statue, and there's going to be this one kingdom that persists forever. Right? And it's about... The coming of the Lord, it's about 
his church. It's about God's kingdom that's going to withstand, that's going to endure forever. But the lesson to be learned here, God says there's going to be this kingdom, then there's going to be another one, there's going to be another one. God raises and lowers kingdoms. He raises and lowers kings. He puts leaders in place and he takes them away at his will. God is the one who is orchestrating all of these kingdoms, all of these countries, all of these things. Now, that is not to say that man doesn't sin and that God wants bad things to happen, but God puts people in positions for his, and we're told that in the New Testament, right? When you see a leader of your, of your nation, God put them there, right? And that's a tough one for us. We've talked about this repeatedly through this semester because that's tough when we say, well, God didn't want so-and-so to be president. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. God didn't raise up such and such kingdom. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Did God put Hitler in power, or did he take Hitler out, or did he do both? If you think you know the answer to that, I'd say that's probably a sinful thought, because God knows the answer, and we don't. We don't know God's mind. God raised up horrible people in the Old Testament. Was Pharaoh a good person? Was Nebuchadnezzar a good person? Was Belshazzar a good person? I mean, there's some terrible people that God says, I brought Nebuchadnezzar down to take over my people, right? So this, this statue represents a kingdom that's there, and then it's going to be gone. And then another kingdom's there, and it's going to be gone. And then I'm going to bring another one in, it's going to be gone, and eventually God says, I'm going to establish a kingdom that will last forever, that will persist forever. And so my lesson there is, if God raises and lowers people, why do I get so anxious over politics? Go ahead, Tony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and we're going to see tonight. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar, and then remember the story? He punishes Nebuchadnezzar, and then raises him back up, and then raises up his son, and then takes the life of his son. You know. So, yes, God. It, it's it's generally in order to punish people or to bring about certain things, it has to be someone who's fairly ruthless. Now, I will admit this: there is no modern day equivalent to Israel, right? So we aren't God's chosen people. Russia's not the enemy. China's not the enemy when it comes to God's people. I'm not talking about politics. So, and America's not God's chosen people. We all know that. We're not any special dispensation in America. When God didn't say, I'm going to put America there to do X, Y, or Z. He has his plan, but we're not his chosen people. But that doesn't mean that God isn't raising and lowering kingdoms and kings and presidents and rulers and dictators. He, he's not a, a clockmaker who put the world in motion and then sat back and let's just see what happens. Right? God is still active. He still has a will. Now, God's will is not always done initially. We know in the end his will will be done. But we know there are times people messed up God's will, right? So, so I'm not saying that there aren't things that happen that God says, I really didn't want that to happen. But I'll tell you this, he knew it was going to happen. It's not unknown to him. But God raises, and if God is in charge, I ask myself, why do I get so upset when things aren't going the way I thought they should politically or, world view, or worldwide. I should be upset about souls. I should be upset about suffering. But you know, I, I mean, I, I can lose sleep because the right person doesn't get elected. But you know what it comes down to? It's generally not a Christian view. It's generally because it's going to affect my pocketbook. 
right? Or it's generally because I don't like what they say about X, Y, or Z. And so I have to remind myself, if God's in control, while I can be involved in politics, I can campaign, I can, I can vote, nothing wrong with any of that. If I give it undue time, if I give it undue money, if I give it undue resources, if I let it control my anxiety, if I let it drive my fear, that's wrong on my part. God raises and lowers kingdoms. He raises and lowers kings. I need to trust what he's doing. Nebuchadnezzar, being the wonderful king that he is, right, God brought him down. And he sees this um, dream as interpreted. You would think he would say, wow. Because he praises Daniel and his Daniel's God. says, you know, Daniel, you, you've got a God who knows what's going on. Then the very next chapter, what do we see? Nebuchadnezzar, this king that's raised up, decides, I'm going to build a golden image of myself. And then when the music plays, I want everybody to bow down to this image of me. All right? And this is where we're introduced again to, if you, anybody ever watch VeggieTales? You remember what that was, VeggieTales? You remember what the name of them was in VeggieTales? Shackrack and Benny. Yes, and so my kids knew Shackrack and Benny because they couldn't say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew Shackrack and Benny when they were two or three years old. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are three of the uh, men from Judah that came in with Daniel that were faithful, that God blessed and raised up. And Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden image. Right? The music's going to play. When the music plays, you bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are very important people. When the music plays, what do they do? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar knows him well enough. I mean, these are men that are elevated in his kingdom. He actually comes over and talks to him. Says, hey, I'm going to give you another chance. And I love their response. We've talked about this and mentioned it a couple times. It's one of my favorite passages, and it's in Daniel chapter 3. And when you look, starting about verse 16, 15, 16, let's see here. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar says in 15, Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, are you going to try to go through all of those instruments? Good, good. And every kind of music, there you go, music and instrument. To fall down and worship the image that I made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, right? This is sort of mocking. Who's the God that's going to deliver you? And I love their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. So first off, king, we're doing what's right, and we don't have to explain that to you. Okay? So let's make that clear on the front side. They're saying, king, we don't have to give you an answer. However, they do give an answer. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that. They say very firmly, God can deliver us. Let's make no bones about it. God can deliver us. God has the ability. He has the power. He's not scared of you. He's not subject to you. God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, even if he chooses not to, it doesn't affect how we're going to respond. We're not going to bow down to you. We're not going to worship. 
what do you get out of that interaction there? What do you learn from that story? What lessons would you take from that? Always stand up for God. That's a great answer. You know, uh, I've talked about before, if someone makes a law and it affects whether or not you're a Christian, then you're probably not a Christian. Um, Because there's nothing that should take me away from God, right? Now, I'm not talking about a law about when we can worship or whether we wear a mask, those things that don't matter, right? I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar saying, you need to worship an idol, and they're saying, not going to happen. We're going to do what God says regardless. Good. Any other answers? Lessons learned? Yeah, faith and trust. So they don't know 100% sure that they're not about to die. They have faith in God. They trust God that God's going to deliver them. But does God deliver everybody and spare them from death or suffering in their lives when they have that faith? No, we've talked about that, right? God's deliverance may not be he parts the Red Sea. It may be you swim across the Red Sea or maybe you die in the Red Sea and get to be with him, right? They knew that if they went into the fiery furnace, God had the ability to save him. They had faithful that he would, but if he didn't, it wasn't going to change their activity. They had faith and trust in God. What else? Yes, sir. God determines the outcome, right? So you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? You've got this fiery furnace, and it's kind of funny that you think you're in control, but that's okay. We'll let you think that. But if God wants us to die, we'll die. If God doesn't want us to die, you can't kill us. And there's not a thing you can do to control that. God is in control. And that gets back to that faith and trust. God is going to do what God is going to do. That's a great lesson. Tony? You know, and I, so Tony's talking about the awkwardness of the, you know, back in Matthew chapter 7, the straight and narrow, right? And very few. There are thousands of people bowing down and only three are standing up. So I don't know if, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are the only faithful people in all of Judah. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that. But at this time in the province where they're sitting, there's only three who didn't bow down. And... I would say there were others who thought they were faithful, who were trying to be faithful. But when you're, you know, you're out in the courtyard and hundreds of people buy down and you see this big old hot furnace, you could see how it would be easy for people to, to slip up, to mess up, to give in. And we get that kind of pressure all the time in our society. It's not that different. It may not be a fiery furnace, but our, what we should be picturing is a fiery hell. Not that we're supposed to be... I don't worship God because I'm scared of hell. I worship God because I love God. But at some point in my life, I was also pretty scared of hell. I, don't, I still don't want to be there today, right? But that should be part of what, you know, you look around and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, well, looky there. doesn't matter. It may just be the three of us, but that's okay. If it's just the three of us, it's just the three of us. Um, You also, if you read this interaction, so I don't read Hebrew, I don't pretend to, but I'm told the way that they address the king and repeatedly is a very respectful way. I thought that was pretty interesting. 
Here's a man who's trying to get you to sin. Here's a man who's trying to get you to bow down to idols. And they're not going to obey him. But they still treat him with respect. Oh, king, we're not going to do that. Oh, king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to do that. That's not who we're going to be. And that's an interesting idea that even this sinful king, even this king who's trying to get him uh, to sin and to, to go against God, they had respect for who he was as a king, right? God put him there. And so they still treated him with respect. And so when I say, hey, I'm going to stand up to the government, or when I say, hey, I'm going to defy what's going on, I just need to make sure I have that same type of attitude, right? And, and you'll notice here it wasn't, hey, everybody look at us. We're standing up to the king. It doesn't say that they stopped and tweeted what they were going to do before they went, right? This was not about them. This was not about attention on them. This was not about them being the martyr. This was purely about standing up for God. That was what it's purely about. And even in that, I'm going to make sure I'm respectful to the person who I'm about to, to stand up to. That God's about to humiliate in some way, right? Um, and then in the end, what did Nebuchadnezzar still do to him when they didn't bow down? Yeah. Did God spare them the furnace? Well, I mean, he didn't let them get hurt, but they still got thrown in the furnace, right? They still got put in the furnace. God could have stopped it before they got thrown in. God could have struck Nebuchadnezzar dead. He could have broken down the... I, no, you're going, you think they liked walking down that plank right before they got thrown in? You think they liked it when the person binding them died from the heat? No. They still got thrown in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and what does he see? The three men and someone else. Wait a minute. I thought there was three we just threw in there. Did I miss somebody? Was there four standing up? No. There was someone in there with them. And there's a debate. I personally think, based on the wording, that it's Jesus that's in there with them. There's some debate about whether it's Jesus or an angel. That's not one that I think is worth debating. But they are spared, right? Not even a hair is singed on them. And based on the way I read it, somehow the ropes burn off of them, but nothing else gets singed. That's pretty neat, right? So the ropes are subject to the heat, and they're kind of in there strolling around. What do you do in a fiery furnace? I don't know what you do walking around in a fiery furnace. Do you dance a little? I don't know. But they go to court. You know, that's a good point. Uh, court talks about it's basically... He never fought it. Right. Talking about the, the way they approach this is very similar to the way Jesus approached his death. Where Jesus is like, the reason you have the power is because God gave it to you. But Jesus didn't kick and scream. He didn't argue. He didn't dig in his feet going to the... He went through it. Now, he didn't want to. And I see that here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, we really don't want to go to the fiery furnace, but God can save us. But everything is, you know, gets back to God's in control. It's, and it is very similar the way God's in control. And so I will go very humble, very quiet, thrown into the fiery furnace. Good point. So Nebuchadnezzar looks in and sees them. He brings them out. Um, he, and again declares the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, 
should be the God that we all fear. So we see how this is a couple of times now where through faithful people's actions, a non-follower is praising God. God is glorified by the king of an evil nation because of the faithful actions of a few. And I think in our lives, we'll have that opportunity. I personally think, and I've talked to my daughters about this, I think the idea of persecution is not some distant, far-off idea. I think physical persecution is a real possibility in our lives or my children's lives where life-threatening persecution could occur. It's already occurring, as we know, in other parts of the world, right? And what a great opportunity to think the way I handle that could have somebody who doesn't even know who God is go, wow, that's the real God. Wow, he's the God we need to be worshiping. That's pretty neat. Their faithfulness has other people declaring God is God. That's pretty amazing. But again, God does not promise us that we will not suffer, that we are always going to be spared. You know, don't get into this pop culture Facebook post of if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. God has the ability to save you from anything. That doesn't mean you're never going to die. That doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. He didn't save his only son from the cross because he had a purpose. We know John the Baptist, right, faithful. He was humble. Did God save him? He allowed him to be killed, right? We know a lot of early Christians were killed. God, it's not that he didn't care about them, but if being a Christian meant that you're never going to suffer consequences, don't you think there'd be a lot of people trying to be a Christian for the wrong reasons? Probably so. Wrong motivation? So... We have to be careful with this idea that God will always get you out of the furnace. He may save you by bringing you home to heaven. He may save you by humbling you through terrible pain or disability or hardships or prison. But that's okay. It's still about God. He's still in control. The other thing I learned here is like, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, can you believe Nebuchadnezzar threw him in the fiery furnace? Yes. He wasn't a God-fearing man. It, it, my brother told me, taught me a great line many years ago, and it has changed the way I approach the world. Why are we surprised when the world acts like the world? Can you believe they're going to vote on... Yeah, I can. I mean, we're in a lost world, people. It doesn't surprise me with anything they do. We're in a world that doesn't know God. Murder, homosexuality... Drug, alcohol. Can you believe they're going to let... Yeah. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Doesn't mean you can't try to do something about it. But when you look at what upset Jesus, most of the time it was not when the world acted like the world. What did he say about the world? I have pity on them. They're sheep without a shepherd. They need... You know, the, the harvest is plentiful. What should upset us is when people who claim to be following God act like the world. And that's when Jesus got upset, right? The religious. So the world killed Jesus. No, the religious killed Jesus. Those who claimed to be followers of God killed Jesus, right? Most of the persecution in the first two decades of the church was not from the world. It was from the Jews. It was from those who claimed to follow God. Can you believe Nebuchadnezzar threw him in the fiery furnace? Yeah, he's an evil dude. As is most people if they don't know God. 
right? Can you believe, again, homosexuality, abortion, you name the topic? My answer is yeah. When people don't know God, they do bad things. God is always the right answer. So our job is not to say, world, quit acting like the world. Our job is to say, world, do you know who Jesus is? Right? That's what we should be focused on. That's how we make a difference. So Nebuchadnezzar, now twice, has been humbled by God, has seen God, has praised God. And we get to chapter 4. Yeah, he's not following what God wants anymore. He has another dream. Daniel has to come interpret it. This is a pretty disturbing dream. Anybody remember the details of this one? Do what? He's going he's to do some weird stuff in this dream. He's going to act like an animal. He's going to chew on the grass. He's going to be kind of nasty in the rain and the weather. And basically what God says to him is, I've raised you up. I've shown you a couple times, and now you've become arrogant. I'm going to humble you. But once you're humbled, once you recognize who I am, I'll put you back in your position. So even though Nebuchadnezzar had seen the interpretation of the dream, even though he had been there at the fiery furnace, he still, he still kind of slid away. And God humbles him. God hates arrogance. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. Right? God hates arrogance always. There's very few things God says he hates, but he hates arrogance, a haughty spirit. Right? God humbles him, but then he's restored back to his position. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies. Anybody know his son's name? Belshazzar, right? And it's easy to get confused with Daniel's Babylonian name. But Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son's name. So Belshazzar sees Nebuchadnezzar in the dream. He sees the fiery furnace interaction. He sees him, you know, out and grazing on grass and then humbled and then raised back up. So Belshazzar learns his lesson, right? It is amazing how corrupting it is to have power. It is amazing what arrogance can do to a person. Belshazzar, no, he pretty much right away screws up. He brings in the holy items from the temple. They have a party, they drink. And this is one of the, as a child, one of the more scary things for me to picture. As they're having this party, what sobers them up? Yeah, a hand shows up. Now I'm here to tell you. I, I don't drink. I think drinking's stupid for many reasons. Um, one is a half a drink a day now has been shown to shorten your life, right? There's absolutely no medical benefit. The cost of it, my daughters are both accountants. So like, how can somebody be so stupid to spend $9 on a drink? But if I did drink and a hand shows up and starts writing on the wall, I think that might be a motivation to say, maybe this wine was not such a good idea, right? But the problem is, by the time he sees the hand and he gets an interpretation, it's too late. A hand shows up and he writes something on the wall and nobody can interpret it. Daniel comes in. Daniel interprets it. And he basically says, your life has been measured and it's been found short. You're going to die. You had a father and you saw what happened in his life. You saw the lessons God taught him. You saw the way he reacted. And yet you didn't learn from that. And I'm going to take your life. 
He basically says, you did not humble yourselves. You didn't recognize God. I'm telling you, this whole arrogance thing, God hates arrogance. And I think we, in today's society, and modern-day Christians, need to be in the same boat. We need to treat arrogance worse than we treat any other sin just about. Because God talks about it more than just about any other sin. Pride and arrogance, it is talked about over and over throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And if God hates it that bad, we probably should too. And it's also a warning to me, because you can imagine, right, I'm a surgeon. Any of you know any really humble surgeons? Yeah, I don't either, in case you're wondering. There's, there's not a lot out there. So this is something that my mom started talking to me about early on, and I don't mean when I was three or four, yes, but when I went to medical school as an adult, my mom would still say, I just want you to remember the abilities God gave you. That's not okay to be arrogant. She knew that even as an adult, I'd been a, I was married, and I'm like, thanks, Mom, I'll go talk to my wife about it. You know, I was married, but it didn't matter. She was so worried about how much God hates arrogance. We need to be really aware of that because we let it, we tolerate it a lot. We tolerate people who, whose opinion is the only one that matters, right? We tolerate people who interpret something different than other people, but it doesn't matter if we don't meet their... We tolerate people who really don't mind dividing a church over being right or winning an argument. Yeah. And God says, man, I hate it. I hate it so much that I take people's lives over it. I hate it so much it's one of the few things I've listed in my word that I say I hate. God hates arrogance. God hates arrogance. A haughty spirit. Um, the other lesson, you know, Belshazzar had his father. The story was there. I think we can be in danger of reading some of these stories, the children of Israel, Jonah, Daniel, Esther. We can read about the first century church, their struggles, their divisions. And if we're not careful, we talk about the mistakes they made. And there's a few good lessons God didn't put these here because they're good reading. He didn't give us his word because it's an interesting read or it's fun to study. He didn't give us his word because, well, these are, this is the nature of it. He gave us his word because he said, these things are written. How many times has he said that? These are written so that you can know. These are written so that you don't. These are written so that you learn. These stories have a value to us. We should be diving into them. And we sometimes make a mistake of, you know, red-letter Bible type of Christianity. And I, I do think that what Jesus says is of the utmost importance. But everything in God's book has a purpose. Belshazzar could have avoided his fate had he just learned from what was right there in front of him. Even if he wasn't alive when the first thing happened, you don't think he read about it or heard about it? He had an opportunity to learn. And I think when we make mistakes, God's going to say, hey, I love you and I'm gracious, but if you keep making that mistake, do you realize at some point I am going to turn away? I mean, that's why that's written here. That's not to say he won't forgive us, but it's here for a purpose. It's here for a reason. When we tolerate things that God doesn't tolerate, he's going to go, I, I gave you that example for a reason. Did you spend time in my word? Did you learn about it? The Israelites... 
first century church, the mistakes the apostles made. The apostle Paul, did you learn from those things or did you just kind of study them and move along? And then the, the last thing I want to clarify, um, and again, I, I've got several things written down and I, I won't necessarily, that was a five-minute bell, dive into them too much. When it comes to arrogance, remember, arrogance is not about being right or wrong. Arrogance is a sin regardless of whether you're right or wrong. Right? It's a misunderstanding we have. That person doesn't know what they're talking about. They're so arrogant. Well, they may be arrogant, but whether they know what they're talking about or not doesn't matter. Arrogance is still a sin. I can be 100% right, saying 100% the correct thing, and still be in sin. That's Arrogance is a sin. Not being wrong and arrogant, arrogance is. It's a, it's a misunderstanding. There's other things. We, you know, we do that with gossip. Oh, they said that about someone and it wasn't true. That's gossiping. No? That's called slander. That's called lying. Right? You know what gossip is? Saying anything you shouldn't be saying, period. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. Well, it was right, so I can say, no. If you're saying something to harm someone else, it can be 100% right, you're still in sin. If you're saying something that doesn't need to be said, that's what gossip is. That's a sin. Look at the list in Romans. Gossip and slander and deceitfulness are different things. Slander is saying something that's not true. Gossip is saying anything that shouldn't be said. So if you're saying something that's damaging someone else, you may be in danger of gossip, even if it's true. Now, if you're trying to restore someone and you're saying it to them, hey, we, that, that's, that's probably okay. If you're saying it to anyone else but them, it's probably not. You can be completely right and still be sinful arrogance. You can be completely right and still have sinful gossip. There's a lot of things we sometimes misunderstand, we sometimes misapply. I use the same example with uh, giving, right? Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is. People misapply that, that no one can know what you're giving. That's not what that verse says. We'll have to study that sometime, right? I promise you someone knows what you're giving, either the IRS or your accountant or the church treasurer or the person that counted or your spouse, right? So, so we know that's not what God means, right? There's no way to give by check or credit card or direct deposit. Your bank knows. Yeah. That's not what it means. So we have to be careful about misunderstandings. God hates arrogance, period. Not the arrogance that's wrong, not arrogance that missed the mark. God hates arrogance, period. And then the final story we're going to talk about... Um, is Daniel in the lion's den. So now we have a new king. Belshazzar dies. God gives the kingdom away because of his sin and his arrogance. And now you have King Darius. Daniel is still in a position of power. The other leaders are really upset that Daniel gets all this attention, that Daniel's been blessed, that Daniel's in power. So they set up a trap. And they tell Darius, let's make a rule because you're so great that no one can bow down or pray to anyone else for the next 30 days other than you. So they pass the rule. Now Darius likes Daniel, but they pass the rule. Well, this puts Daniel in a bind. Because what is it that Daniel does every day? Yeah, three times a day, he prays to God. So the rule's passed, and what does Daniel still do every day? Yeah. I think it gets back to our same, same lesson. If a law would change whether or not you're a Christian, then you're probably not a Christian. Daniel still prays the way he always has. Now again, he doesn't go to the town square to pray. He doesn't say, hey king, look at me, I'm praying over here. Some people misinterpret, says when the edict was signed, 
Oh, see, Daniel waited till it was signed. No, finish that verse out. He did what he was doing continuously. He did it before it was signed three times a day. He did it after it was signed three times a day. He didn't wait till the edict was signed to say, now I'm going to go pray. Everybody look at Daniel standing up to God. Nope. It was never about Daniel. It was never about attention. He was never disrespectful. He didn't go out and say, somebody come shoot me. I'm about to go pray. He did what he had been doing. God, I'm going to pray to God because I pray to God. I worship God because he's God. Period. So Darius is in a bind here. He's made this law that can't be taken back. Daniel gets caught. It was a pure trap. Daniel gets caught. He gets thrown in the lion's den, one of the great stories we teach our kids. But just like the fiery furnace, what we learn is God is in control. Faith and trust. Daniel's going to do what he was going to do and face the consequences and let God deliver him or not. God closed the mouths of the lions. He saved Daniel, right? We see the same story. What we see in the book of Daniel, the lessons we learned, God is in control. He raises and he lowers kings and kingdoms, but they're below him. He is in control. We can be resistant to what's going on. We can defy what's going on. But if we do it with arrogance, we're wrong. God hates arrogance in any and all situations. In church, in life, in sports, in teaching, it doesn't matter. God hates arrogance. Being arrogant is always wrong. God can save us from anything. He will choose what to save us from. We don't do things because God can save us. We do things because God is God. That's why Daniel did what he did. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did what they did. We follow God because God is God, period. Not because he can save us. We don't follow him because he's going to save us from stuff in this world. We follow him because he can save us in heaven. Not about this world. It's about him saving us in heaven. We follow God because God is God. All right, I went over. I apologize. Any questions, comments, laments, interjections, alibis? All right, thank you. Oh, yes, ma'am. Correct. No, that's, that's correct. Yeah, God did away with them and wrote them off uh, before the coming of Christ. They were no longer God's chosen people. Um, he said, you've abandoned me, I've abandoned you. They have no right to the land they're on. That's just a political issue. Yes, ma'am. Because remember, they rejected God continuously and God said, you're done. All right, so they're doing VBS tonight. Not all the kids will be coming in, so we'll head straight into our Devo. So. Thank you, everybody.